Hmm. Are you sure about that? Is that what you think? Is that so? Hi, I'm Sokka, the host of Sokka's Is That So, a show where we challenge conventional wisdom across a range of industries, hoping to get you to ask better questions and not take things at face value. I'm originally from Botswana and Nigeria. However, I've had the chance to travel through Europe, North America, and Latin America to have many of my assumptions challenged and combat my biases. The goal of the show is to help you learn along with me as we challenge more conventional norms. We're recording the show during the coronavirus, so hopefully you should have more than enough time to listen to these. Let's get started. Today we'll be discussing the nonprofit sector and organizations, and primarily debunking some of the most common myths that are associated with them. Nonprofits seem to get a bad rap. They're seen as these wishy-washy, wasteful, inefficient organizations that don't do anything, or at least don't do anything well, which just isn't true. Really, I think the one reason is they're just badly named. I mean, nonprofit, what a terrible name. It gives the impression of failure. It'd be like if you call the news a not entertaining program or a hospital a non-enjoyment center. It insinuates that they're not profitable and therefore losing money, which isn't the case. Lots of these companies can and do make money. They're just not set up with the primary objective of making money. For example, let's say there's a food shortage and you go to the shop. The for-profit business would be likely to charge you 10 times the amount for a loaf of bread since they know it's in high demand. The nonprofit would probably sell it at its regular price or at least cost the same amount as what it get, they get it for. So a better name would probably be a not necessarily for-profit organization. You know, that might be a bit long, but more accurate. By the way, for those listening to this podcast on any social media platforms or want to just comment, we'd like to know if you have any other names you think a non-profit organization should be called. But anyways, let's get to the meat and bones of this issue. And let's start with myth number one. Myth number one. Working in the nonprofit sector doesn't require any business skills, as seen in the private sector. I challenge anyone to show up to a job interview with a nonprofit organization without any business skill credentials and see how far you get. As I said, this comes from a common misconception that nonprofits are set up to not make money. Nonprofit is not a strategy, it's a tax status. Nonprofit businesses are just businesses, just like any other. They need good employees with good skills and experiences to operate efficiently. As I said, this comes from a common misconception that nonprofits are set up not to make money. Nonprofit is not a strategy, it's a tax status. Nonprofit businesses are just businesses like any other. They need good employees with good skills and experiences to operate efficiently. And if they don't, they'll close down. They can't hire morons, lose millions upon millions, shrug their shoulders and go, oh well, we're a non-profit. Or we lost 10 million euros. Oh, we're really good at this non-profit thing. The survival of a non-profit organization is dependent entirely on how well it's run and how skilled the employees are. They need to pay rent, overheads, etc. You know, they have to be budgeted and they're not just given money easily. They have to apply it and meet certain criteria. They compete with other nonprofit charities for profit. That requires an immense amount of skills. It's hard enough to sell useful products to people, never mind asking them to just give you money out of the goodness of their hearts for you to spend and not expect a return. 
nonprofits operate in a very competitive market. They essentially run the same as for-profit businesses. The only difference being that at the end of the year, profit isn't paid to taxes or to private owners, but instead reinvested into the company or the people. Myth number two, nonprofits are wasteful and only focus on short-term fixes. This is another misconception and a huge one at that. Lots of nonprofits are judged very heavily, but they still have overheads and money that they have to spend. People seem to think that all this money should go directly to people in need and not admin costs and things like that. Saying things like, I'm not giving money to them so they can pay for their director's fancy salary or office furniture. I want to go to the people who really need it, or I want the money to go to them at least, which seems nice, but it's flawed. For example, Doctors Without Borders, it says donations can help us save lives. That sums it up perfectly for me. The money is helping them do their jobs. It's not a matter of you flying over to some war-torn country and handing random people $20, then heading back home thinking you've done your bit. That's not going to do much. When was the last time you gave a homeless person on the street $2 and came back next week to see him in a suit and a briefcase, having got his life together? I mean, that's just not how it works. Now that money would be better placed if it goes to a nonprofit co company who, yes, will spend some of the money on office equipment and expenses and so on, but that's what allows them to do useful things, you know, get supplies and services that are really critically needed. Just because they're nonprofit doesn't mean their employees shouldn't, you know, or should drive rusty cars or live on discounted dog food. Success and efficiency require money. A bunch of people working in the grubby office with the heat turned down and the lighting turned off isn't going to help anyone. As for the short-term aims, yeah, that's probably a bit true. That's generally what you do for emergencies. If there's a crisis and people are dying, waiting for help, they're not going to be too happy if you show up with a clipboard and a 15-year long-term strategy for the efficient reallocation of funds to safeguard the future of whatever. No. Those people are going to be like, where the hell is my food and medicine? Myth number three, people working in nonprofits are a bunch of softies and they don't require any emotional resilience. I don't know if many people have experienced working for a nonprofit themselves, working for little pay towards a goal that might never be reached. Goals like ending poverty, ending homelessness, curing cancer. It takes a lot of courage and persistence and resilience to fight the good fight when you may not be able to complete your mission. People who work in nonprofits are not there for money, generally, for an easy job or, or a great work-life balance. They're there for the good cause. They're there because they want to do good and make a difference, despite the many downsides of working for a nonprofit. Hell, I can walk into a private electronics store and ask a random employee questions about their specific products and they won't have a clue what I'm talking about. Why? Because they might not necessarily care about it that much. They're there to make money, not because they really believe and have a passion for selling toasters. That's the type of job that doesn't require emotional resilience. Oh, no, I, I sent that person home without a universal remote because I forgot we had them back at the store. You know, definitely not as much emotional resilience as I say, you know, oh my God, if I don't get this done, People might not get the medicine that they need and die. Or working for the Red Cross, where you're constantly dealing with disaster after disaster. Wondering, will there ever be an end? And if you take a job full-time with that level of stress, 
and you're not doing it for the money, you're doing it because you want to do it. Those are the people you really want working for and with you. Myth number four, nonprofits are ineffective and the world does not improve much from their efforts. What I've just described there is the public sector. Hey, you, nah, JK, LOL, hashtag burn. Nah, forget that. The things that we all take for granted, you know, like food, medicine, education, and so on. So you might think nonprofits make no difference. To be clear, they don't make a difference to you, but they're very effective for the people they actually help. I think nonprofits go unnoticed. It can be easier for a for-profit business to get praise. You know, you make an app that texts the word yo to your friends, and all of a sudden, you get a multi-million dollar successful phenomenon. But if you cut the mortality rate of five-year-olds in half over the last 20 years, as UNICEF have done, you know, people don't see that. They still see the other half that are still dying. Recently, I had a conversation with Fabian, who works at a nonprofit organization. Let's see what he had to say. What exactly is a nonprofit organization? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Uh, a lot of people, I think, when they think nonprofit, think about the soup kitchen. You know, very much a charity doing direct delivery, and that's certainly one type. But there's a lot of different types. So if you think about uh, the climate change uh, process, you've got you know Extinction Rebellion, a lot of organizations entering the public sphere, and they'll probably do that. Uh, as a nonprofit, you also have uh, a number that will almost be like consultants to the big aid agencies. And so you have organizations like Technoserve, DAI, et cetera, that'll sit there um, and really make sure that the big uh, development work around the world um, gets done and gets done to a professional level. You've got foundations such as the one I work for that are working for a philanthropist, helping make sure the best organizations you know, receive the support. And then you have categories like social enterprises, organizations that run like businesses, they make revenues, they uh, make sort of pseudo profits. Uh, but but are involved in you know doing so either as a not for profit or a very low profit organization. Um, in fact, you know my early career was spent in healthcare, working in healthcare analytics, and we were doing that for the public sector, and we were structured as not for profit. So you can you can have quite a few different flavors. So, in terms of all the different types of nonprofits that you can have, it sounds like some of them actually do have some profit motive in order yeah. to you know keep the lights on and you know have enough revenue to solve some of the world problems that are out there so there might be a, a business incentive as opposed to the misconception out there which is you know we're all just trying to save the world we don't actually need to make money it's not that important it's not about the money but it is actually a very important part of it right money is definitely a, a massive element of the sector and you can be fundraising for that money so looking for donors uh, or aid agencies to pay away, or you can try to make it in the market. Uh, and that's been a real trend, I think, over the last five to 10 years, as a number of organizations have said, uh, if we're going to be able to do what we do sustainably, um, you know, for example, we work with an organization in uh, East Africa that helps uh, smallholder farmers get improved access, get access to improved seeds and fertilizer. And they've realized that if they gave it away, uh, a, they wouldn't be sustainable, and B, their recipients would be recipients rather than customers. And so they've, you know, they they, they charge for their product. It's still subsidized by donors such as ourselves, um, but they run themselves like a business, and that pseudo profit motive really does help. As, as a nonprofit, you can't return money to your shareholders, um, so you don't you don't call it a profit, but you can have a surplus that you are then required to reinvest in your services in future years. 
Speaking of organizations that you just mentioned there, organizations are much more giving than we actually presume. Mm. So if you look at some of the statistics, I mean, the top 10 companies have given billions of dollars over the past couple of years. Corporate social responsibility is becoming a bigger thing. Uh, companies like Microsoft and similar tech companies are also trying to give back. So this idea that, you know, individuals that contribute on a, you know, an individual level to give five or 10 pounds here is what most of the sector is like versus actual, you know, corporations or entities or foundations that have large budgets are putting, you know, a lot of money into this and, and it's an imperative for them. Would you say that, you know, it's 50-50 between individuals and corporations or would you say corporations are sort of leading the charge on this or foundations versus individuals? Uh, by far and away, the biggest uh, monetary flow in the whole sector are aid agencies. So UK aid, US aid, uh, and so on. So actually, by far and away, they dwarf uh, all giving. But I think you've you've touched upon a really good point, which is that companies can do good while doing well. And I think you know, part of that is corporate social responsibility. Sometimes it's effective and sometimes it's not. But if you, uh, you know, the, the power of the Unilevers, the Procter & Gamble's, the Nestle's of the world to do tremendous good through sustainable sourcing uh, is, is really there. And I think, you know, that's, I think, an opportunity for the sector and an opportunity generally to help those companies do the, have the most positive impact they can. Uh, because, Compared to any giving flow, they you know their commercial interactions are an order of magnitude larger. I see. And so you mentioned that the biggest portion of the you know the sector is UK aid mm. and those types of organizations. Yeah. But the misconception here I'm thinking of is you know most of the time the people that come from that particular realm are not business minded people or they don't have the necessary skills for the nonprofit versus profit sector and so would you say th that having a business mindset come coming into the you know nonprofit world be it from you know the corporations themselves or the individuals in terms of the talent and skill sets that they bring is actually something that's relevant and needed in the nonprofit sector or is it a completely different skill set different way of thinking different mode yeah it's a really good question and i think you know certainly it's easy to have the conception if you haven't worked in the nonprofit sector that you've got a whole lot of lovey-doveys that don't really know what they're doing. And in fact, what you find are a lot of very dedicated, very professional, often incredibly well-qualified people uh, working in the space. But I think just as, you know, just as the case is in any sector, you need a mix of skills. And I think, uh, you know, especially with the rise of social enterprises, especially if you're going to work with companies to help improve their sourcing practices, for example, having a business mindset is really valuable. Um, so yes, I, th I think it's valuable. I do think I, I was cautioned when I moved across coming from strategy consulting into the nonprofit world, not to assume that, oh, you know, as a business person, I'll just be able to sort it out with my wonderful skills. And it's it, the problems are far more complex and entrenched than that, that, you know, really this needs you know, a lot of levers to be pulled by a lot of very skilled people. That makes perfect sense. In terms of one thing I just picked up on what you said there is in terms of the sourcing that you have to do in the nonprofit sector, it sounds like, you, you know, you have to interact with many different partners, may, maybe a lot of different geographies. Uh, you have to go, you know, into matrix organizations where there's different reporting structures. So there's quite a few different people you have to interact with there. And one of the things I'm just thinking about out loud is 
you know, there's a misconception there that nonprofits don't have to get involved with governments or politics or anything like that. Uh, you know, they can just go in there, sort of save the day and, you know, improve people's people's lives on the ground, right? Yeah. But there's a lot more to that. You actually have to engage with the local governments. You have to engage with, you know, the actual individuals, as you call them, customers. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the the need to do things that are not necessarily specifically related to the nonprofit sector, like get involved with politics yeah. or seeing them as a customer and, and things of that nature. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I think the, the politics are unavoidable. D- taking you know, step back for just a, a moment, but it's worth saying that you can help now or you can help in the future, you know, humanitarian work and development work. And the way that you engage with politicians and with communities is, is different in each of them because, you know, if you're coming into, say, a drought relief situation with food parcels, um, the, how much you need to engage with whom, you know, maybe you'll need to work with the local, you know, the local politicians, the national politicians to ensure that you can get supply to the area that you're, um, you know, if it's a conflict zone that you'll get, you know, whatever protection uh, is, is feasible and, you know, you'll also be there on the watch out for corruption. Uh, but your engagement with the, the the customer, the consumer, the recipient will be primarily transactional. But if you're trying to work on development, so say you're working uh, with you know cooperatives, I was, I was visiting a project working with uh, you know, a lake that had been historically overfished and the, the NGO was working, uh, with the local fishermen to, uh, to make sure there's sustainable sourcing and sustainable offtake. So you, you understand how much fish you can harvest, that you keep within that, that the proceeds are shared. And then over time that you reinvest the profits from one year, say you're getting ripped off by a middleman who's charging extortionate prices to, to take the product to Kigali. Uh, you know, the, they take the profit and they they preserve a portion of that this is the cooperative not the ngo and then invest that in a truck so that they can now transport their fish to market and get the the additional premium and that you know is a multi-year engagement with this fishing cooperative to uh to improve their operations to improve their management of the lake as well as their financial you know the, the profit that they're making um and that sort of notwithstanding that there's you know significant sections of the NGO community that work on advocacy, which is essentially the realization that compared to government flows, even aid flows are tiny. Uh, you know, the, the <laughs> things that are bigger than all the, the philanthropic flows, the, the aid flows are a small compared to government flows. And so if you can improve the government's delivery of services, shift it, say, from uh, maybe a, a subsidy on petrol to nutritional programming in the health sector so that you know, uh, women of childbearing age, young mothers um, get nutritional supplementation consistent with a healthy uh, pregnancy and, and um, young child, uh, you know, early childhood years, that that could do a huge amount of good. So, so there are a lot of organizations that focus uh, squarely on trying to improve influence and improve government uh, giving, uh, government flows. That makes sense. One of the things I picked up on what you just said is it sounds like when you engage with the governments, it's an attempt to have a more long-term, you know, sustainable uh, real strategic driven way to improve people's lives, right? So there's a development yeah. aspect of it. And you, you put it the right way as well. There's a sort of humanitarian emergency, you know, we need to drop food, but there's also a longer term sort of uh, 
you know, turning the ship around mm. and making sure that it's going in the right direction as opposed to just the immediate quick spurt, which is what most people have uh, in terms of a conception regarding mm. nonprofits, right? People go in there, you think of Sudan or places that are really bad and people go in there and just drop food. But there's a whole development aspect of it mm. as well, which is the sustainable, long-term, strategic, government-engaging portion of things. Yeah. Why do you think there is that misconception out there that it's mostly just humanitarian and just let's go drop food and whatnot. Is that because that's what we see on the TV and, you know, the kid on, you know, the fly on their face and the, the typical imagery yeah. that we get from, from the sector? Absolutely. It's hugely salient. I mean, it was, it was fascinating. I was out in uh, Ethiopia recently and, you know, I, my image of Ethiopia prior to going had been set by the famine. You know, it, it, cl clearly it was a defining image of a generation and you get there and it's incredibly lush, beautiful agricultural lands. And you know, most because of population growth, actually the majority of Ethiopians have been born after the famine. And yet, you know, what is it? I, I can't, I don't know the exact number, 25 years later, um, I, I want to say, we that's still the memory we have. So I think those are incredibly powerful images. They're very heavily marketed. And for retail philanthropy, you know, you are my personal giving, they're going to be the images that get the most, uh, get the most donations. And not unreasonably so. The development game's tough and it's littered with a lot of failures. Like, the, you know, the, the, the classic image is one of a well that is drilled and then sort of six, nine months later is already rusted up or, you know, dry. Uh, so it requires a sustained focus of attention and resources and an acceptance that not every project will go well. And governments are better placed than individual retail givers, usually, for achieving that. Now, there are obviously notable exceptions. The Gates Foundation, Will and Melinda Gates Foundation, to give its full title, you know, clearly are focused very squarely, especially in health, but in, uh, across a number of sectors, in um, trying to make long-term, permanent, sustained changes, and you know, certainly, you know, a number of foundations, uh, such as the one I, I work for, are similarly focused in having a long-term impact. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, at the end of the day, we're not just trying to solve something now and then. We're trying to, you know, change people's lives. Mm. And you know, there's been a lot of good work that's been done over the past 10, 20 years to take a lot of people out of poverty. Indeed. A lot of people still think that nowadays, you know, if you were to ask them how many people earn X amount of dollars a day or yeah. how many girls are being educated, the the vast consensus is that, you know, the world is still a very bad place because mm. maybe we're in the West here, we're in a bubble or whatnot. But going back to your point about, you know, the imagery that we see out here and the misconceptions about how bad the world actually is and mm. how much we've, you know, actually improved it through the things you're doing at nonprofits and whatnot. Could you speak a little bit about how much better the world is than, you know, we actually might think at first? Because you said you went to Ethiopia and you saw there was actually in some ways better than you, you anticipated before you went there. So are there any numbers or statistics or anything that, you know, gives you hope in the morning yeah. and actually lets you go to work? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that uh, you know, the, the history of aid, I think, has been one where a lot of people got very despondent, you know, myself certainly too, and a lot of people just sort of throw up their hands and go, we, we can't make an impact. And I think that's, that pessimism leads to bad decision making, because if you assume nothing can be done, you try nothing. 
Um, so, you know, I think you raised the number of uh, girls in education. I think the number is 90%. But the book that you absolutely, if this is a topic of any interest to you, the book you must read, I'm trying to remember is the it, title, it's Hans Rosling's Yes, book. Factfulness. Factfulness. Oh, yeah. spectacular. Yeah. Just a spectacular book. Um, and if you don't have time for his book, some of the YouTube videos that he does are just, you know, uh, some of the most enjoyable statistics you've ever watched, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, is a sentence that doesn't really, you know, you know, grok, but but somehow does. Um, so he's he's fantastic. Um, the, the story that I I I mean, we have we all know the climate's going to shit. Um, you know, we we know that we've got a huge crisis on our hands, and I think there is, given how big the problem is, the human tendency is to to go all ostrich about and stick our heads in the sand. You know, and assume that all the animals, you know, every animal that isn't an urban fox is going you know, or pigeon is going to be wiped out, mm. but. I'm going to get it wrong, but I think it was a southern white rhino. It was hunted to near extension, down to 200 animals uh, alive uh, on, on the planet. And they, you know, small breeding herds were kept preserved. And there's, you know, over the last, I think, 30, 40 years, we're now at 20,000 wow. southern white rhinos. That's incredible. So the ability of conservation efforts um, to protect and return species you know, is is proven. We've done it. We I mean, with the mountain gorillas uh, that that famously Diane Fossey uh, worked to protect, uh, worked worked to study and protect, are now um, their numbers are on the rise. I think they're up to a thousand from six hundred individuals uh, previously. So we can, with concerted effort, turn the tide, um, and we should we should try. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, those are some great success stories that are out there, but maybe not many people know about. And, you know, that's a perception problem as well. Mm. But something that comes to mind is, you know, there are a million things you could be investing your time and resources into, right? So with the rhinos, that is a success story. And, you know, people had to make a concerted effort and mm. a framework as to why we're going to tackle this problem, why it's important and yeah. decide to actually apply resources into it. Because if I was to, you know, think about it from the outside looking in, a lot of people think nonprofits are wasteful. They're sort of indiscriminatory in terms of where they spend their money because maybe there's less accountability and, and things of that nature. But how do you decide on what problems to solve and how to actually deploy capital to get some of these amazing yeah. success stories that you're talking about? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think there is an answer for, for what we as a foundation do with a dedicated staff looking at it and what uh, a retail organization can do. Uh, for, for us, it's a confluence of a few factors. It's things that are within our mandate. You know, we, we have a focus uh, given to us by our donor. And so we're looking for things that fall within that. There's another circle about what needs to get done. Uh, you know, there are problems. There are many problems in the world. And you need to focus on ones that you can reasonably make some movement on. You know, the real question about why now? And then there's a third element of of cost effectiveness, you know, understanding what the benefit to cost ratio is of what you do. So we will, you know, my, my background was working private equity for a strategy consultancy and, and similar to what we do there, we, if we're doing an impact investment, we understand the financial return. If it's a, if it's a grant, you know, there is none, but we also understand uh, the impacts that we're having, give or take, and you know, clearly subject to risk. And we look at and total up, okay, you know, we're going to save this many animals, or we're going to protect this much bushland, or, you know, we're expecting that we're going to uh, make this much food available to this many individuals. And we, you know, take that, we divide it by the amount of money we've 
given. And then we've got some benchmarks published. You know, you can, Copenhagen consensus will give you, you know, a fairly large raft of benchmarks um, on what benefits cost returns you can you can expect. And we go, does that meet the threshold or not? Um, so it's, it's really a combination of, of those three factors. I, I think the other element that's particular to us um, is that we really believe in the power of having an effective organization that we are helping to grow. There is a tendency to want to create everything from scratch, to be the person who said, I invented this or I solved this problem. And the truth is that I think a lot of problems a lot of problems have already been partly solved or someone out there is doing some really good work. And actually the most efficient resources, efficient use of resources is to help them do more of what they're doing than to try to find someone who's going to perfect it because that, you know, that perfection is very elusive. Um, so I think, you know, it, it takes, you know, humility on the part of our donor to, to, to be prepared to do that. But I think it's a real, you know, I think it, it's really effective. Uh, really, it, it's the right thing to do. The when when dealing with an individual, I think this is really interesting. But there's a whole school of thought called effective altruism, which is we have the science and we have the knowledge to understand what is the benefit of giving a child a deworming tablet at age five. How does that compare to a mosquito bed net? How does that compare to a dose of antibiotics? How does that compare to an extra year of schooling you know, as delivered through, I don't know, a teacher training model? You know, we have this and there's some folk over at GiveWell are probably the most uh, consumer friendly and most you know, fully digested uh, version of this information. But you can log onto their website and they're like, you know, if you want to give some money, here is the m way to have the most impact on the most number of people per dollar. And you've got to apply your own value judgment for that because, you know, implicit in any such ranking is like, well, we, we you know, the sanctity of human life and you go, well, how does that compare to an elephant's life? Like that's not a decision anyone can put in an Excel spreadsheet and give you an answer. But I think they're probably the most thoughtful people on the topic. And, you know, as I said, you can just log on their website. They have checked out the charities in terms of how much money they spend on overheads, whether they get the job done, whether there's any evidence of what they're doing works. Uh, just they make it so easy. So I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to have a look at them. One of the things you mentioned that stands out to me. So you mentioned the words, you know, humility, altruism. Uh, what is the benefit of, you know, saving a human life versus an elephant life? These are very emotional uh, or empathetic uh, topics or, or things that are not necessarily considered. I just want to touch a little bit more on that because, you know, the nonprofit sector is something that will stress your, or, or should I say strain your emotions? Mm. I mean, you're going to some really difficult situations and then maybe going back to a developed world and then having to, you know, see things that n most people wouldn't see or deal with things that most people wouldn't deal with. So I want to just talk a bit about the empathy portion of things or the the um, the caring or, or how you navigate the emotional side of working in this space. Because for the most part, you know, we all assume that it's people that are very soft hearted that want to do this kind of work or either some people might think you have to have, you know, nerves of steel to be able to go into these places. But from your perspective, what what does the emotional side entail and how do you navigate that as you work in this industry? Yeah, it's 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 a very good question. And I, I don't think I have any particular superhuman abilities. I think it's interesting. I was reflecting you know, ahead of, of talking to you. 
what do I like about working in a foundation and what do I not? And one of the, the tough parts of my role is I have to say no more often than I say yes. Uh, because, you know, you have the multiple lenses and you can see things that absolutely ought to be done, but it's not your ballywick. It's not not for you to do. And that can be quite tough, um, especially when you know that these NGOs have put a lot of effort into uh, into what they're doing. They really believe in it. They're doing good work, but for whatever reason, it doesn't match the criteria that you apply. Uh, so I, I have all the respect in the world for in our implementation partners, for the, the operating NGOs, the delivery NGOs who are out there day in, day out, uh, helping you know helping kids who have got malaria and giving them the right treatment etc and and also a lot of those times operating with nowhere near the level of resources that they should you know the idea that you come back and, and live this fantastic life that we do in london knowing how many people you know are suffering for want of a course of amoxicillin is is just it's, it's very tough um, it certainly encouraged me to give more giving out of my own private income, although it's, you know, obviously a fraction of, of <laughs> it's nothing compared to, you know, resources that the large donors can give. But I think it's, you have to do that, I think, because otherwise you're not consistent with your own values. In terms of, I mean, those are excellent points. It, you know, it's my family members work in nonprofit sectors as well. And I see them have to navigate that emotional mm -hmm. turmoil, have a different perspective on life when they go to developing countries mm -hmm. versus living in the West or developed countries as well. And oftentimes I see that they have, you know, life in perspective. You know, they appreciate things that we have. They appreciate the sanctity of human life. They, it just gives them a different viewpoint into the way the world operates, right? Uh, is there anything you've, learnt about yourself or about humanity working in the nonprofit sector versus when you worked in the business world? And the reason why I ask is for myself, you know, working in a business environment, in the for-profit environment, you know, I've understood the way the world works sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. We have to make money. We have to, uh, you know, play the game of politics sometimes. And, you know, you know, numbers do matter and things of that nature. But I've never actually worked in the nonprofit. So I haven't been warped to think about the world in a different way. H how has your uh, development from the for-profit to the nonprofit changed your reality or view of the world in terms of, you know, day-to-day, -day, but also just in, you know, the grand scheme of things? Yeah, it's a good question. So my my career has been bouncing in and out of uh, the nonprofit space. Um, so, you know, as I, I mentioned before, my I started my career working in healthcare analytics, working with hospitals across Australia and New Zealand to improve quality and efficiency. Um, and I say that because, you know, probably my first experiences were in the nonprofit, and then I moved to you know strategy consultancy, private equity, to the heart of modern capitalism. And I think. It, it's easy in the nonprofit space to demonize uh, companies, and I think one of one area where I think there are a lot of gain could be made, as, as we were mentioning earlier, is helping companies do their do their work in a more ethical and a more sustainable fashion. And in fact, I, I'd, I'd argue for people who have had you know a significant career in the in the private sector and are thinking about moving to the nonprofit sector, actually ask yourself. Can you do more good where you are by influencing the companies you work for rather than trying, you know, shifting it all, losing all that skills, all that political capital, you know, all that career capital and moving into another sector where there are already quite a few people working? 
so I think I think having jumped across uh, from nonprofit to for profit, I think a greater understanding that the companies aren't evil. I, I think having jumped back recently, I think a the amount of life satisfaction you can you can derive from living you know a life that is you know I, I I don't live a bad life. You know, London is a phenomenal city to live in, but also know that I'm using what I've learned to make the world a little bit better. You know, that's, that's a fantastic, uh, combination. And, you know, I, I, I came from lunch with, with former colleagues and, you know, people I've worked with in the past and, you know, there is, there is, you know, a sense of satisfaction with the choices I've made that I think, you know, not obvious because you do step away from the same salary and progression and status frankly, that you can get from succeeding in the business world, uh, to, in the nonprofit world. Yeah, there, there are two things that stand out to me that you said there. So life satisfaction, right? It seems to, you know, go up if you work in the nonprofit. Well, not all of them, but in some regards it can go up. But you don't necessarily have to sacrifice your living standards, at least to that degree that most people think you have to. Uh, obviously, it depends on what organization you work for. It depends on the level of funding available. You know, there's so many different factors there. But in terms of, you know, actually living a decent lifestyle, you mentioned you live in London, right? You have yeah. a pretty good life uh, for, for the most part, not just from a you know, business or compensation perspective, but from a life satisfaction perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think most people would agree or they have that intuition that, of course, when your life satisfaction will go up because you're actually making a difference and change in the world. But let's talk a little bit about the misconception that there are sort of no good paying roles in the nonprofit or it really is everyone on a shoestring budget and, and whatnot. Would you say that's a fair? It's, it's not easy. You take a hit. And, and you know, I was lucky in some of my early career that I have a little bit of a nest egg and therefore some financial security, which, which helped to make the move. I, I maybe wouldn't have if that hadn't been the case. Um, so I, uh, I don't want to give anyone the sense that, uh, you know, it's a well compensated career. Mm. Um, but also I think this question of life, set life satisfaction, it's, it's not that life satisfaction is derived from working in a nonprofit. I think you'd be very satisfied working in the for-profit sector and I, I certainly you know have been um, in my career I think it's the satisfaction it comes from living a life consistent with your values and as I said I think if you know there's a calculation that you need to do that says if you want to do good in the world the best way to do it might be to stay in the private sector and give a significant portion of, of your salary to specialists um, who are working day in, day out, tirelessly, improving people's lives, whether that's in healthcare, whether that's in uh, animal uh, conservation, or t take your pick. Um, and, and that should be just as satisfying as it is going into the nonprofit sector. I think the nonprofit sector is tough because that dependence on the, the wheel of fundraising, that rat, rat wheel of, of fundraising, hamster wheel. The fundraising? That race? It, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a tough place to be and can detract, distract you from doing the, the direct delivery that I think a lot of people are in the game for. Um, and I think the other element is of life satisfaction is doing something you're good at and are appreciated for. And you, you've got to ask yourself if you're coming across, do you have skills that would be useful? Um, in, in, in a con you know you, you maybe want to help 
uh, I don't know, baby elephants in, in, in Kenya. You seem to like baby elephants a lot, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, was, I, was, I visited the shelter at Wildlife Trust uh, two weeks ago. So they are front of mind for me. Um, on that was on a personal day. Um, uh, but, but maybe actually, you know, I, I used to work in healthcare and actually maybe a better thing for you to do, like if you're really good at accounting, well, the NHS always needs accountants. And actually you can be comfortable that you're supporting, you know, a phenomenal British institution here and using your skills rather than trying to start a whole new different career. So I think I would just, uh, I just wanted to sort of respond to that idea that life satisfaction necessarily gets better because you work in a nonprofit. And I, I just don't think that's uh, the case. I think, you know, a fair, fair amount of people are incredibly satisfied and a fair amount of people are frustrated um, with, with how tough the game can be. Yeah, it definitely is a tough game. I mean, I have family members that work in it mm. every day and, you know, uh, I mean, it's it's not as easy or as rosy as they, they make it seem, right? Yeah. You, it's, it is a tough situation to be in from a personal perspective. It will challenge your perspective on life. Yeah. There is obviously, you know, the compensation aspect of things you have to deliberate for yourself. But again, I think it goes back to the point that you mentioned. It's about the values you have and is the work you're doing consistent with those values and are you you know, providing the most value that you can personally based on your skill set. I think those are excellent points to to touch on. But uh, thanks so much for joining the show. Uh, just as a final thing to wrap up with, a bit about yourself or a message that you'd like to get out there to people, uh, you know, more about, you know, what it is you do and what you're passionate about or any message you'd like to get out there in particular? Oh, wow. Um, tough question. No, I would... I just hope people have got a book for Christmas. I hope people are reading taking some of the downtime to read and learn about an element of, of life for the world that's, um, that is unfamiliar to them. I think society could do quite well at the moment if we all just stop to listen to the other side. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Sarkas Is That So? Today, we challenge the conventional wisdom that nonprofits are just a bunch of softy slackers and they, in fact, do little to no work for no returns. We'd be interested to know your thoughts, though. So follow us on social media at Sarkas Is That So? and leave your comments. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.